Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome Hello. to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is a podcast of the opinion that progressive politics can change the world. I'm your host, Hannah Shah, and I'm joined by email supremo, Stefan Rolnick, MP and Chair of Progress, Ali McGovern. Hello. And our special guest for today... I'm just testing my mic there. Keep testing. And our special guest for today, Ollie Dugmore, Head of News and Politics at Joe, on a very muggy Monday in the podcast bunker to chat about the latest in the Tory coronation race, is what I'm calling it now what we can expect from today's, i.e. tomorrow's shadow cabinet meeting, and how should we regulate the social media giants in the era of the meme? Now, hi everyone. How are we all? Did we have good weekends? Ali, you just said you went to a wedding in the Cotswolds, is that right? Yes, and like, um, Ollie's holding my mic here, so I feel a, li- I feel a little bit like, shall I? I, feel, I felt a little bit like I was being interviewed like by, by Ollie, which is obviously a terrifying experience. Um, it's not really, he's very nice. But I mean, he's very good at his job, so obviously it is terrifying. But uh, yeah, no, I was in the Cotswolds this weekend at a lovely um, wedding of my friends, Steve and Sarah, and that was very, very nice. And most of us managed to resist the temptation to talk about politics at the wedding, which is not a good thing. You should never do that. You shouldn't spend your whole time at a wedding boring people about Brexit, mainly because people won't want to sit next to you ever again at a wedding. Right, Stefan? <laughs> yeah, I was I was just saying before we started recording that I spent my Friday night at a house party in the late early hours of the morning trying to explain to people what the EHRC was. Um, I'd also like to interject at this point and say that Muggy Mondays should be the consistent name for this podcast recording. I think Henna is just there. <laughs> Also in um, weekend news, I met my first real life Goldman Sachs banker on the weekend. Wow. It's really weird to see them up close in person. How was that? Um, he was surprisingly normal, actually. No devil horns, that, no yeah. evil plans to take over the world. Didn't agree on politics, which is, you know, hardly a big surprise. But, well, you know, it's a thing ticked off the bucket list. There you go. There you go. And Ollie, how was your weekend? Yeah, it was pretty chilled out to be honest with you um it feels like the first weekend in a while now that the tory leadership contest has died off where there hasn't been something manically happening over saturday and sunday so um i took the time to spend it doing absolutely nothing which was lovely do you usually have to work on weekends it's pretty it's 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 pretty mixed to be honest with you um the team we have at joe is by contrast you know the other national broadcasters uh broadsheets newspapers etc very small um Hmm. so we split the responsibilities covering the news desk and other things like that across the team so yeah i do work weekends tell us a little bit more about joe because i think that people will have seen and probably your uh 
I think we call it shareable content. On memes, tag memes, memes. On, on the website, twitter.com. And people will also probably be aware that it is in some sense targeted at young men. Is that fair? So tell us a bit more about Joe. Sure. So um, Joe started out as an Irish company, um, was one of the first in over there really digitally compared to a lot of other competitors. So that puts it really at the top of the pack, really, when you're talking about digital journalism in Ireland and using that success, they came over to the UK, started out in Manchester, and we initially started out as a sports publication. So largely covering football, um, as you put it, dank memes, shareable content. I probably I probably wouldn't call it that just to stop my soul from imploding every day I went <laughs> into work. But, um, you know, funny videos, um, stuff, taking a line on things, being satirical, taking the piss out of people. Uh, and that built us following, starting in sport, which basically gave us this legacy of having an uh, audience that's tilted t- more towards being male um, and also very young. So we're about, the gender split is about 60-40 um, and the age groups are very tightly down to sort of 18 to 34-year-olds. Um, in terms of like what we actually do now, very little of what my work entails and indeed anyone else on the team entails is specifically gendered. Um, the only thing that I can think of recently that we've done was um, I interviewed Victoria Atkins about male domestic abuse. So that is really recently the only thing I've done that is specifically gendered and that's because the issue is gendered. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say that like, for example, when I'm interviewing Alison or Rory or anyone that I'm thinking like, what's the, what's the line for the men? Like what, what can, what can we do for the men? Would somebody please think of the men? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, we, we, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not doing that. We're, um, yeah, we're, it's more of a, like sort of, we have this male audience, um, but what we do isn't, isn't like always specifically directed at them. It's build it and they will come and, you know, I, to be honest with you as well, I'm not really sure where in, where in the media landscape in the future, whether there is a specific place for like a men's vertical. Um, I think broadly speaking. Wait, okay. Hold, hold it there. Hold no, up. No, As Beyonce would say. Okay. A men's vertical. Yeah. So a vertical is, um, in, in media talk is sort of like a place or a strand of your website or your social media channels so for example you could have a football vertical a politics vertical a men's vertical if that makes sense so i'm not sure where there is really specifically a place for that in the media market at the moment so i don't know if it would be wise for us to go after that but yeah so i wouldn't say we were particularly particularly um oriented towards men really okay fair enough i mean there are other organizations such as when you were talking about that it reminded me a bit of how um, Lad Bible's changed a bit over the past couple of years. I feel like that started off as very much almost like a men's vertical, but a bit more organic in terms of they were sharing some like quite laddie stuff. But recently, I don't know whether you, they've been acquired or they've changed their strategy and they tend to do much more like um, viral stuff that seems to be like for social good, don't mm. they? Yeah, well, they've, they've, they've sort of opened their eyes to that in a sense. But, you know, by contrast, I would say that joe.co.uk doesn't have the same sort of misogynistic past yeah. as, those, as those publishers. I mean, it was um, explicitly homophobic at one point, and proudly so, right? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Um, and also, you know, I mean, we don't need to go into it, but, you know, objectifying women in, in ways like that. Look, I can see why they're they're pivoting towards that. And people often do put us in the bracket as those, la- as those lad sites as well. Yeah. For me, as a political editor, I don't view... Lab Bible or Unilad, although they are basically one and the same thing in mm. any way as my competitors, not least because like I, I couldn't tell you the last politician that they interviewed or subjected <laughs> to any scrutiny, but by virtue of being, you know, a social publication online that has a male audience, we do get lumped with them a little bit. Um, but I would definitely say that my, my main competitors, my main competitors when I'm going out there doing my job would much more be national broadcasters than it would be them. 
You just mentioned putting politicians under scrutiny and just tell our listeners about a video of you. I think it was for the Peterborough by-election that went viral. Just set the scene. You were interviewing a Brexit yeah. party candidate. That was a, that was a, that was a pretty surreal one, actually. Um, so we rocked up in Peterborough um, to report on the by-election and I got in touch, obviously, the story and it actually came very close to being the story, but it wasn't in the end, was whether Mike Green was going to become the first Brexit party MP to be elected to the House of Commons. He wasn't in the end, Lisa Forbes beat him by, I think it was about 800 votes. Um, but yeah, so he was out in the town and I just put in a call to their comms team and was like, you know, I'd like to get a bit of time with Mike. They were in a pub. Um, I got five minutes and walked in and we rocked up with our camera and walk in, turn to the right, and there's Nigel sat with the various Brexit party, um, a pair of cheeks, Gwaine Taylor, head of comms, assorted, and the sort of look of like, oh my God, how did they find us? Do they know what, you know, they, am I going to get doorstepped here? And then when they realised that we were here there to interview Mike, they sort of cooled off a little bit and went back to their lagers or ales or whatever. Um, went and sat in a corner with Mike and really, I mean, didn't have, didn't have very much time to be honest with you to prepare for it. I didn't have any notes. So we just sort of sat down with him and started talking. And to begin with, you know, the clip that we put out was only about two or three minutes long. It was about a five minute conversation, but the first half of it was basically just me trying to get him to like sort of put some policy or like make some statements because famously the Brexit party doesn't have a manifesto. It doesn't have any pledges. So whether it can be called a party or not, I mean, remains to be seen. Regardless of that fact, I was trying to get him to basically like say some things that I could then analyze and just got the wonderful line out of him that um he said that the eu has infiltrated every level of our education system and so at which point i just really quite simply said how and repeated that to him until he admitted that he couldn't name a single instance of it actually happening and then obviously i mean the plaudits that we got for that were really nice and all the rest of it but it was i just felt quite good about exposing someone for what they are yeah so obviously that's really good in the sense that you were able to expose a Brexit party candidate or their lack of understanding or lack of nuance in their political position. But Ali, as an MP, how do you feel about this kind of new political journalism? Is it scary? Is it good? How would you feel about being put on that kind of viral sort of format? Well, there's two things. I mean, obviously with Ollie sat next to me here uh, in uh, what you were called earlier the podcast bunker, which I also know as like my office. So thanks for that, <laughs> Anna. Uh, my office is not a bunker. Um, uh, but obviously with Ollie sat here next to me, um, I'm obviously going to say it's great. Um, but to try and just like bring a level of honesty to this, there's two sides to it. Firstly, um, when you do a broadcast media interview in the traditional style, so when you like do something on telly, like there is a little bit of it where if you've got a question that you don't really want to focus on particularly or whatever then you're just gonna like have a line and know that in reality that interview is you're going to be on for like two minutes so the thing you've got to do is answer the question and then move on to the thing that you want to talk about so you can just do that and the problem then becomes if you are with somebody who actually has got quite a lot of time in the sort of podcast style we tend to talk about stuff you know much longer for about half an hour and, and if something's really difficult, then actually speaking for that length of time about it can be much more of a challenge, which is, I would guess, Ollie, that's what you find with Joe, that the reason why you're able to get stuff out of politicians to a certain extent is because you've just got a bit more time with them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing... The thing about that as well is like it will start happening now when we do interviews is like people's spads cut us off towards the end because we'll, we'll start questioning them. We'll figure out what it is that we want to hammer them on and then just keep going on it because we're not on a broadcast schedule. There's also a little bit of it which, which benefits us at the moment, which is that 
Joe is not, at, at least in the same way you talk about like a BBC or a Sky News or Channel 4, we're not viewed as yet a sort of like pedigree of broadcasting excellence. People don't know us yet. So they say, oh yeah, Joe Cody K, what's that? Oh, well, they make videos that go absolutely massive on Twitter. Like, oh, great. I like the sound of that. Yeah, I'd like a piece of that. And I think a, a little bit of it is they don't expect us to turn up and actually expose them to any kind of scrutiny. Whereas, you know, if you're going on with formerly Paxman or Nick Robinson, you've got the lines to take on front of you. You've got them highlighted as Pretty Patel did this morning on Radio 4. I don't know if you saw that. It was very funny. Um, but yeah, there's, I think there's a little bit of that that plays into our hands as well. But and I, th- I think I think that's absolutely right. And like you know, as a as a, as a punter as much as a politician, like good on you, basically. But the 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 flip side of it, and the, one of the reasons why I really really like what's happening um, with you know newer media is just like you get so much more time. So I think if you're prepared to say, okay, I don't actually want to do an interview that's just like um, where you you know answer the question and then move on to what you want to talk about but you try to like deal with more challenging stuff and say okay like if the if the other side of this deal is that actually I'm going to get like 15 minutes to talk with a person who is prepared to have an honest conversation with me about the real divisions that exist in politics and what they actually mean then like f- to be honest that's actually much better if you're like it's a bit of a prisoner's dilemma thing where if you're both prepared to engage in a kind of proper discussion and the politician is and the interviewer is, then I think with 15 or 20 minutes in a podcast, you get a heck of a lot more. And I think that for people who are listening to that, it's a bit like the way Nick Robinson, I think, has really figured this out and wants to do his kind of like political thinking, is it called? His podcast. Um, Because, you know, you realise like you get a lot more out of people. We've known this for ages, right? What what do you learn more from a politician from on Newsnight or Desert Island Discs? Like, you know, it's people actually want to understand as well as just hear like the answer to the difficult question. Mm. That said, especially at the moment in relation to the Tory leadership contest, I think there has got to be a place for, you know, incisive interviews where there's a time pressure where you just have to answer the question and you'll be revealed if you're not. I mean, it's a balance, obviously. But the thing that I'm trying to say is if you if you accept the fact that with new forms of media it's possible for you to be caught out, then I think you get the benefit of more time, which you would never get in a traditional TV interview. I think the metric that I use for these kinds of things is which WhatsApp groups these things break into. I've got kind of that those lists of like, you know, insufferably endless political WhatsApp groups where all this information often swirls around, but then there's the kind of oases of you know, the people you knew before you started working in politics. And actually, I think it's the content that pierces that bubble is often a really good marker of how we're communicating with people. I think often the approach to communication is, well, we'll start where we are. And then, you know, maybe if we add enough emojis, like people will start engaging with it. But actually, I think the approach that you've taken is to actually meet people where they are and like make content that is just fun and funny just because like, it's okay for the news to be fun sometimes and then try and bring people with you and have those interviews. I think it's a much more effective way of doing it. And obviously you can do that on traditional media. It just reminded me, Stefan, of the one thing that really cut through in the Tory leadership contest so far with my sort of like normal using air quotes friends was um, the Esther McVeigh and Lorraine Kelly spat because it seems to be that everyone's parents, everyone watches, everyone sort of remembers them from when they were big TV 
presenters and you see the sort of like Lorraine Kelly look the like Mariah Carey-esque or I don't know her um and it's sort of that sense that it can be done both in traditional media and new media but you need the talent and the skills to be able to pick that moment and to share it do you think that's right Ollie? yeah I absolutely love that because like that it was like the, the electorate just went oh my god if she's managed to fuck off Lorraine Kelly who is this woman <laughs> what on earth what on earth could she be arguing for that would manage to achieve that yeah I mean you there's this one of the key things that I think has led to Joe's success is um, that traditional media is excessively focused on Westminster uh, in a way that just virtually I can't even I don't even know what to compare it to to be honest with you we always look when when we're trying to take on stories like how can we report this in a way that is relevant to the people that it's going to affect? That is all, always what we're trying to do. And it's, it's a product, one of pragmatism, because as I said before, we're a pretty small company at the moment. We can't, we don't have the capacity to have a camera crew. Well, actually we do, but we just choose not to um, <laughs> have a camera crew running around Westminster all the time, picking up like quick little sound bites from MPs. What's, what's their take on this? How does this play with the ERG? Blah, 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 blah. In actual fact, it means that this, that this sheep farmer in Wales is going to be put out of business and lose his family home that's what we're trying to report. And I know it sounds terribly cliche to be like, we're about the people in the politics, Mm -hmm. but that is fundamentally, I think why we're cutting through because when we do our editorial, when we do interviews, it's always generally speaking, not in a Millbank studio or in central lobby. It is someone in Peterborough, someone in Swindon talking about how Brexit or whatever it is affects their daily lives. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, Progressive Britain podcast co-host and email writer Stefan Rolnick here. I've hijacked the podcast equipment and taken it into the podcast bunker to bring you a very special message about the Progress Daily email. Now, if you didn't know already, the Progress Daily simplifies the news, breaking down the forces behind the headlines, calling out the BS and making sure that you've got the sharpest analysis on the biggest issues of the day. We won't fill your inbox with more of the same. We know you're busy, firing off hot takes on Twitter, sending hilarious memes about Boris to your group chat. So 
sit back and let us trawl through the boring stuff for you. Subscribe to The Progress Daily to cut through the noise with insight and inspiration from myself and The Progress team. It's like the news, except you don't feel awful afterwards. You'll find the link to subscribe to the email in the show notes of this episode. We've made it really easy for you to unsubscribe because we're so sure that you'll like it. Be a progressive. Subscribe to The Progress Daily. Um, moving away from the sort of sheep farmer uh, and to something a bit more fancy and Westminster focused, I want to quickly talk about the Tory leadership race, which I'm now just calling the Tory coronation, to be honest. Um, pretty depressing. Um, I know we all try to sort of turn off from politics at the weekend, but all this stuff about Boris Johnson and the recording and domestic abuse, I think we should probably talk about that very briefly. I think my broad question will be, is there anything that will stop this man winning the vote amongst Conservative Party members? I mean, I don't know because I don't know their electorate well enough, but I think most of them probably will ignore it. I think that this is like a classic thing where those of us who already disagree with him, this is just yet another reason why. What I thought was really mystifying was how if somebody, if, if, if that this has happened... And some and I and I've been told that this was going to happen, and somebody said to me, "How does Boris Johnson respond?" I'd have said, "What he will do is he will try and charm his way out of it. He will say, look, thanks to my neighbours, we had a bit of a a bit of a row. Um, obviously, it's right that they, you know, took the steps they did because you know they were worried about people's safety, and that's the right thing to do. Thanks to them, you know, if you're worried about your neighbours, always call the police. Thanks, everyone. Let's move on. I thought he would charm his way out of it." And he hasn't, which is the I think is the only sort of interesting part about this, mm. uh, except from except from the thing that really really stuck with me that I can't help think of all of the and we know don't know anything about this situation actually between Boris Johnson and his partner so I make no comment about that it's a broader question here which is that I think of all the women in my life many of whom you know my generations above me who suffered from domestic violence um in some cases quite brutally and i wish to god they'd had a neighbor with a smartphone mm. you know there could be women alive now if more people had done this so like in some ways if there's one positive thing that comes out of it it's that women's aid get to go on the telly and talk about, and how, talk important, about it, yeah. how important it is that people will call the police but i just think you know boris johnson has got himself up ahead of steam and i think the problem is he's got so many people around him who just need him to win for their own careers that they're just not going to let this go yeah I, I agree with virtually everything that he's just said to be honest with you i mean there was there was a part of me that when the story came out that actually questioned its validity that whether it should even be reported in the first place um it's it indicates a significant amount obviously about the life of our prime minister what what they're like at home i questioned whether it was a, a breach too far perhaps of his privacy i don't know i still don't know what the answer is to that to be honest with you i think the ferrari and the right-wing press about who the people are that reported it is absolutely repugnant i think they did absolutely the right thing i mean who who else what else would you do in that situation other than go to the police and call the police it was absolutely the right thing to do um and then sort of now we're in as the new cycle churns on we're in the phase of um, sort of the hot takes about who these people are and now it's sort of the cover-up and the, the the propaganda operation of Johnson and his partner being papped in a field, papped, which clearly wasn't like a photo photo opportunity. I mean, the, the whole thing, I find it quite, I don't know, I find it quite sordid. I'm 
I feel like we've sort of got this. This would be an opportunity for us to have a really honest, open conversation about domestic violence and domestic abuse. And instead, as as with quite a lot of things, it's just turned into basically a culture war between the left and the right. And I find that quite disappointing. Mm, yeah, I'm, I remember that you were talking about this morning. I heard Pretty Patel on the radio this morning as well. And I was really surprised in that he doesn't even need think that he has to come out and say anything. He can sort of trot out his MP outriders to say, oh, well, I don't think anyone should be recording anyone in their private family home. And you're like, is that really the line that we want to take? No, no I don't. That's, that's a nonsense. I that's think that's a total nonsense. nonsense. But just barefaced saying that because apparently like five people have been promised the role of chancellor now. So they're all vying for it. And it's just a bit embarrassing, isn't it, really? I think collectively we're failing in two ways. And like you guys have already said that quite quickly this didn't become about the incident itself. It became a war of how we frame this conversation. These kind of the reasonable Tories just dismissing it as only an issue of privacy. Like you said, the right wing media framing it all as politically motivated. And the two actual important conversations we should be having, the first one about whether the way Boris Johnson has handled this means that he's fit to be prime minister and the actual really important question about this issue more broadly has been completely ignored. And I think in the media, and it is really difficult because I know, you know, covering leadership races, they are races and people cover it like a horse race. But I think we're really starting to see, and I think when the American election was happening in 2016, we all looked to America and we were like, look at them, you know, they're covering this all like a horse race and they can't see there's like a national emergency running towards them. And, you know, you don't want to kind of, cry wolf too soon but I'm kind of worried that we're heading towards this place where things are becoming more and more normalized under the guise of who's up who's down and you know before we know it actually won't be able to turn the tide on these conversations and these things will become kind of irreversibly normalized. Well you saw that Sky News cancelled their debate tomorrow um, because Boris Johnson was refusing to take part you know why on earth are we not seeing the two men left in this race being scrutinized and debating debating issues and it's because straight out of Linton Crosby's playbook if you are in the lead do not throw it away don't 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 give the opportunity for for Boris to put put his foot in his mouth it's 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 obvious actually for me because I think Jeremy Hunt is probably one of the safest candidates for him to face in the final two you know it's not Raab who can attack him from the right and talk about proroguing parliament and win win the Tory vote that way. And similarly, it's not Rory Stewart who, with pragmatism and perhaps a, a certain degree of honesty, could have challenged him from the left in a way that I don't think any of us anticipated before the race started. Him ducking this debate demonstrates that if he won't stand against the softest candidate in the race, the easiest candidate for him, he's not hiding from the other candidates. He's hiding from himself. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And Boris Johnson is somebody who... You know, he has made his name based on his um, literary abilities, his rhetorical abilities, <laughs> um, his ability to make an argument. But actually, he's demonstrating that this is all a joke, that when it suits him, um, he's like, you know, McCavity, the mystery cat. And he is not really under scrutiny now. The weirdest thing for me this morning in this whole circus was hearing a conservative um, MP on the radio saying that Boris Johnson was going to face 16 um, hostings um, so that the public could scrutinize him. He didn't mean the public, he meant conservative party members, you know, that represent a tiny proportion mm. of our country. And, you know, I think that there will be a lot of, you know, we'll have to discuss general elections on another episode of this podcast. <laughs> but I think that there will be a lot of pressure for a general election because 
um, Boris Johnson's majority will be, you know, less than fingers on one hand. We've got the Brecon by-election to come. Um, Ollie, no doubt you will be uh, uh, packing your backpack with your, yeah, exactly, packing your backpack with your camera in it and searching for the Brexit party candidate in that by-election. How is your Welsh? Uh, pretty good. I went to um, Cardiff Uni for three years, so I'm looking forward to going back there. Oh, also our other resident Welshman's here. Let's get word in. Yeah, I want to find out the the haunts you used to frequent. Uh, were you a live lounge fan? I liked a bit of live lounge. Yeah, a cool. little bit, little bit of Ladybird as well. Welsh club, big up there. Cool. We'll move on from that very quickly. <laughs> Just wanted to check that. <laughs> Continuous I mean, it's, off it's the all record. Good. Like you know, this podcast can become a kind of student clubbing tips podcast. <laughs> it would bang. If you want, if you want, if you want. One for Joe Politics. Yes, absolutely. Um, Just before we move on, I do want to talk briefly about the man of the moment, uh, Rory Stewart. Now, obviously, he left the race, not before providing us with plenty of hashtag viral content. Um, Rory walks, Rory walks on, and Stefan's Rory walks off, um, which was one of my favourite responses to that. Um, Ollie, do you think that Rory's cut through, and it seems that he did have real cut through, will last? Do you think this is just a sort of viral flash in the pan? Difficult to say. Um, I mean, I would actually say as well, that one of our interviews with him um, did like 2 million views. It was did twice as well as, with the, as the Peterborough by-election candidate. I think that him saying, that was the first time he sort of said on camera, believe in the bin, which obviously was pretty well crafted. But look, I don't know. I, w- I was at his um, sort of concession speech reporting on it and he's, he's sort of now going in the direction of, um, he's trying to drive people to sort of, join the Tory party and become these sort of digital ambassadors under his hashtag Rory walks. I don't know whether, whether people will buy into that. He's a, he's a fairly unique character. I don't know whether other people trying to emulate that style will work particularly well. I mean, I can see the strategy. I can see basically if you go for a Corbyn style, you drive a load of young people into the party and then you basically take it over at the next leadership election. I mean, that sort of makes sense. Um, and if that's what he's doing, yeah, fair enough. Whether it will work, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest with you. And I, I put this to him when I, when I first started the interview. I, literally, the first thing I said to him was, you're not going to win. And and sort of prompted hashtag viral content, the blinking guy um, <laughs> res, res, response from him. But it just it, there are certain inalienable facts that are true for every, every single person who's standing in the Tory leadership race, whether it's the arithmetic of parliament or the arithmetic of the Tory party. At the end of the day, the Tory members are an overwhelmingly white male elderly group of people and when they see someone who talk who's coming through talking like honestly about what no deal brexit entails and that doesn't tie into their worldview why would they opt for someone like that when they can go for boris johnson who regardless of what it means for the country confirms everything that they suspect is true about the world i i i it's going to be really difficult for Rory. I'd like to see him do it, to be honest with you. I said at the time, of all of all the Tory leadership con- contenders, he was the one that I thought would actually do a half-decent job. Um, but it fated from the start that he would never he would never really make it this far, I guess. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, God, every like Labour person I know kept saying to me, like, do you think Rory could do it? With like desperate hope in their voice. And I'm like... So did a few of the Tories, actually. No, I know, and I was like... No. <laughs> and the fact that we all hope, that, wish that he would probably means all the more so that he's not going to. Because as Ollie just said, like, like we are not the Tory party electorate. We're just not. That's why we're in the Labour Party or, you know, or even just, 
you know, some of my friends who are not really to do with politics or just aren't a member of a political party were sort of really keen uh, for him to do well. But again, it comes back to this fact that the people who are choosing our next prime minister are a very specific and small slice of the British population. Yes, specific and small seems to be the right yet, set of descriptions. Yet wildly influential. <laughs> um, now, finally, for our little weekly update, I don't think we can help but talk about Brexit. Ah, uh, Brexit. So, obviously, we're in the uh, Alison's office, because I'm not allowed to call it a bunker, but in uh, our special podcast, Time Warp. So, today is Tuesday, and the Shadow Cabinet are currently meeting, aren't they? They they, they are. Um, <laughs> it's been... It's been an interesting few days, actually, on a whole Brexit. Let me just say about Labour, first of all. Interesting, Jeremy Corbyn and the leadership saying clearly they want a public vote on any deal. Um, I think it's been tacitly accepted that this is where we were for a long time. But obviously, you know, there's some people in the Labour Party for whom they're not sure they want to be in that position. The thing that's slightly um, great, I suppose, is that... Uh, that is a relatively small number in the PLP. So often I'm I'm asked to go on telly with Caroline Flint or Stephen Kinnock and it's presented as a kind of either or equal sides of um, the debate uh, question. But actually, you know, the vast majority of the Parliamentary Labour Party, the Labour Party outside Parliament, people in the trade union movement, you know, all agree with our position as it is, which is, you know, public vote. Um, give the public the final say. So it all feels a bit like we're kind of having these meetings and pronouncements all to come out in the same place. So I think the big question for the Labour Party is how do we rebuild our sense of pro-Europeanness? Um, and and you know the next generation of Labour members that I've met, I mean they are they are really pretty hotly pro-European after everything they've been through. So I think we need a way of talking about that that includes everybody. Um, but when it comes to no deal, I mean, I, you know, Boris Johnson will face parliamentary arithmetic unless he's proposing we have a general election ASAP. Like he will face the same parliamentary arithmetic that Theresa May faced. And we voted against no deal on several occasions and uh, we'll do so again. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that keeps me up at night is that, I mean, neither, I mean, among many things, neither Tory leadership candidate has really articulated how we're going to get a new deal agreed with the European Union, let alone agreed amongst ourselves. But as we saw last week, and, you know, I think we'd all be lying if we said it wasn't concerning Parliament's attempts to take control of the agenda, which was, you know, touted as a way of kind of stopping no deal again, didn't quite meet the threshold. And there is some questions about whether the Labour MPs who are willing to um, accept no deal versus the Tories that aren't, where that balance is right now. Should we be worried about that? Or do we think that as it gets closer, people are going to start shifting back I mean, to us? The first thing that I would say is that people should, if, if people are worried about it, they should go back through all of those debates that we had with motions led by Caroline Spellman and Jack Dromey and the votes to stop no deal. Um, because it was really pretty, you know, it was pretty conclusive. People always point to the vote that we won by one, but that was specifically on the legislative approach. Whereas... Um, actually, we have we voted on no deal uh, quite a few times. Um, the other thing that that I would say is that I think that there are very, very, very few Labour MPs who are in that position of countenancing no deal. I mean, I, I would 
if I had to guesstimate the number, I'd say one or maybe two. Um, but that's that's just a guesstimate. I think the vast majority of Labour MPs, even those who think, and they're maybe 10% of the PLP, think that Brexit ought to happen, um, don't want no deal. Sure. Um, so I've, there's, there's, two, there's two things I'd say here. That, Stefan, the, you, you mentioned there about how the two Tory leadership candidates haven't really said anything um, when it comes to Brexit. And I would simply posit the reason for that is because there is nothing that they can say. Um, if you if you subject this to any level of attention to detail, when you say to anyone, what is your strategy? Or if you even, and this is even particularly deep, but if you say to them, what would your tariff be on X product? <laughs> there is no answer mm-hmm. because the whole thing is an ego trip. There, there is there is no substance to it whatsoever. Well, actually, no, there is substance to it. It is, it is the closure of airports. It's shortages of medicines and food. It is the collapse of the pound. That is the substance of, of what we're talking about, of no deal. That's why when, when anyone who advocates for it, if you ask them to make an argument for it or literally just tell me specifically in reality what will happen, they can't tell you. Because there isn't an answer now on, on the sub, on the subject of um, of of the Labour Party and and the shadow cabinet, which is happening today. Um, the I, I I I would be inclined to say that we're basically watching sort of uh, the pendulum swing of Jeremy Corbyn's constructive ambiguity. To be honest with you, I would expect this to be more towards the Remain side, and then and then we'll go back to where we were before. Um, <laughs> I, I I I I really struggle to see why what what the circumstances are that have changed just you know because the whole way through this process the whole way through the brexit process i saw some polling recently that showed that only about 15 percent of of the labor party is actually the working class leave vote that people suspect makes up a huge part of it mm. compared to about 60 percent of people who are sort of more more remain minded if there was ever a time for for jeremy or, or specifically the if i'm just going to say jeremy rather than the leadership if there was a time for him to support either Remain or a people's vote. It would have been a long time ago in this process. You've reached the point now where if you do go for that and and that and that becomes your strategy, people just won't buy it. People won't believe it because there's there's too much of a record of the Labour Party voting in favour of Brexit to carry out certain aspects. And and there's also the rhetoric. There've been multiple opportunities where he could where he could where he could have come out and said we support a people's vote, we support a final say, we support a second referendum, whatever you want to call it. But it hasn't happened. And I think for better or for worse, the strategy was let's sit back and, and let things implode. Well, unfortunately, that that implosion, whilst happening, has also then led to a surge from the Brexit party, which are not just going to take votes away from the Tories. We saw it in Peterborough. They took, they took votes from the Labour Party as well. Um, and now this is sort of unfortunately a situation of, of that strategy's making, I think. And yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I'm just not inclined, basically, to believe that it's that it's a pro-Remain or pro-second confirmatory ballot. Blah. Blah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> seems to be the main result. I mean, I obviously don't agree with you. Um, if you want to read a little bit more about, this is the nerdy part of me coming out, uh, Matthew Goodwin recently released uh, a report that he did and they analysed uh, the outcome of the European elections and basically made the argument that actually both main parties are being attacked from both flanks. So you can make the argument either way. And that actually Brexit is a symptom rather than a cause of sort of a wider partisan dealignment that we're seeing. And I think we can see the growth of viral media sort of around that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a lot of discussion about polls at the moment and like how many votes... Labour are losing to who and the Tories are losing to who, whether Labour are losing more votes to Liberal Democrats 
or Brexit or whatever. And in in truth, I say this as a politician, there are things where you have to look at the evidence, make a decision, defend it. And of course, you worry about who you're communicating with and who your audience is and therefore what you say to them. But in the end, you can't do like you can't do representative politics by riding polls. You have to decide what you think is the right answer for the people you represent and make a case. For, for me, that's absolutely the story. Basically, I would say over the last two or three years, there has been, I would say, an, an absence of effective political leadership, basically across across the political divide. Um, it, for a for a government that's performing in the way it does, for an opposition to be, unfortunately, I was going to reference polling then, but let, let's just <laughs> let's just not say polling. Let's just say to cause a collapse of the government, the inability to do that. You know, in a, at a time where the country is gripped by crisis and the government is underperforming, literally falling at every single hurdle, to not bring it down is 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 astounding um i i agree with ali that there's there are instances where you just you need to show a bit of leadership you need to take a line make a stand on something and i honestly think that the general population the electorate can see through it's one of the biggest myths i think actually that that people people can't see through a lot of what happens at westminster they they don't they don't people don't understand the strategy or the sort of people being led by polling or this is our position because we can cater these to these parts of the vote i think most most voters see through that very very easily and when when a policy has been won like you know we can talk about x part of the labor strategy because there are things where jeremy corbyn takes a very principled stand on across the board but in this case on brexit people see constructive ambiguity and they just go no thanks absolutely I think that Brexit has put us in a situation where we've got a political divide that is absolutely not one that we would choose. And I think that my I'm quite sympathetic to people who feel that division and who feel like I didn't get into politics to constantly argue about Brexit and people keep forcing me to talk about Brexit when actually this is not this is none of my driving motivations. Mm. However, that's where you conclude that you've just got to try and work it out in your own mind and make a case absolutely i think making the case and saying probably in conclusion nothing much has changed classic Classic. i mean it sort of reminds me i just thinking about this while i'm there it's because i thought it was a good joke um year 3000 anyone remember that song by busted not much has changed but we live underwater i feel like after the climate change stuff that may be the case um on that terrible joke note from me uh thanks ollie thanks stefan Thanks, Ali. And of course, thank you you for listening. We're going to be back on Friday and we'll be speaking to Darren Jones MP about the future of Britain Group and various other exciting policy things. So we'll see you then. In the meantime, subscribe, rate and review. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was One in the West by Blue Dot Sessions. Licensed under Creative Commons, and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business. Removing friction and frustration, 
for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. 